0: Life Audio. Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant Podcast. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries. Thanks for listening. We're number 38 on Feedspot's list of top 100 Christian podcasts. Thanks to listeners like you. ...who follow the show and give us a good review. Thanks ahead of time. Uh, We'd like to get to number 30. So we are on our series, God's Love for the Unlovable, and so we'll be doing this until the end of the year. What happens when God's love for the unlovable, the unloved and the unlovely, and that's all of us on any given day, if we're just honest, bumps up against those who are clearly not lovable. They're unworthy, they're unrighteous, they're unclean. So what goes down? What does it look like, feel like? What happens when God's love bumps into the perhaps most unlovable, unworthy, unlikable person in the entire Old Testament, maybe the entire Bible? What happens when the love of God for the unlovable, the unloved, and the unlovely bumps into the active, unrepentant, sex addict God-blaming prostitute, Gomer. What God does will likely shock you. Even if you've heard the story before, you're going to be surprised. Well, we're going to pick this up after a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. Oh, my goodness. Because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery and departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Hosea chapter 1, verses 2 to 3. Well, prostitution no doubt was and still is a tough gig. It's a very violent life. One study said 82% had experienced sexual abuse, 72% experienced physical violence, almost 90% were sexually assaulted in childhood, and we think that's one of the reasons they eventually get into the lifestyle. PTSD is normal, 68%. It's characterized by higher levels of anxiety, depression, insomnia, irritability, flashbacks, emotional numbness, hyper-alertness dissociation, mood disorders, and these levels are comparable to battered women or sexually assaulted victims or tortured prisoners of war. I mean, it's brutal. So it makes sense then, sadly for so many, there is a quote, strange existential sense that life no longer has any purpose, close quote. So over time, the person just begins to lose their personhood and their ability to be loved. Uh, Here's one prostitute who said it's hard to value yourself when you've been sold for as little as a pack of cigarettes. Another, at the time I didn't understand the damage the men were doing to me, to my sexuality, my trust, my self-esteem, and ultimately my soul. And here's one more. When you are in prostitution, you internalize the violence. You hear the same repulsive things over and over when you're being called a slut, a whore, stupid, or disgusting. Well, how did Gomer get that way? Gomer likely wasn't born a prostitute or planned to be a prostitute when she grew up. Gabor Matei believes that there's no such thing as an addictive personality, and nor is addiction a disease. Instead, addiction originates in the person's need to solve a problem, a deep-seated problem in our midbrains, often from our earliest years, that was to do with trauma or loss that we experienced. So is this what's behind uh, Gomer's urgency when God says of her, she has been unfaithful and has conceived her children in disgrace? She said, I will go after my lovers, see the urgency who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, all my oil and my drink. So here's my question. Does God see her sin first or her brokenness and emptiness? Interesting question, right? See, I'm not in any way suggesting that she's not responsible for her choices or actions. Jesus is going to need to die for her sins like he does for mine. But she also needs a greater power to get her brain rewired. And God does that. God's love for the unlovable must do that for all of us. We would like to think that if we could just sit down and talk to Gomer, if she would just understand the consequences of her actions, the benefits of being romanced by God, Well, then she would just repent of her ways and run into the arms of God and and all live happily ever after. She just needs a celestial cognitive behavioral therapist. Now, all those things are good, and maybe she would benefit from them eventually, but not when God finds her. She needs a rescuer more powerful than her brain's inner working models, and she's not going to go quietly. Well, here's what we're hearing about addiction today. Addiction originates in a person's need to solve a problem, a deep-seated problem, often from infancy, uh, that has to do with experience of trauma and loss. Here's Gabor Mate again. The female sex addict is not addicted to sex at all, but to the dopamine and endorphin rewards that flow from the feeling of being desired and desirable. Her promiscuity is... Not perversity, but the outgrowth of a childhood adaptation to her circumstances. Are you following me? As with all addictions, sex addictions is a stand-in for nurturing the person was deprived of. By moving from one partner to another, a sex addict avoids the risk of intimacy. Gabor Mate continues to say that addicts he worked with in East Vancouver, and this also might be true for Gomer, quote, their brains never had a chance. Yeah? So back to the chronically unfaithful Gomer. At the time the Hosea narrative begins, the issue is less how she got into prostitution, but how she can get out. And she clearly does not want to. Nowhere, by the way, I get it, does Hosea mention addiction? But the approach God uses has all the fingerprints of modern addiction intervention strategies. In fact, It's kosher to describe all of God's love for unlovables as interventions, a little or a lot. So it's helpful to see addiction on a scale 0 to 10. 0 is a person with no addictions at all. 10 is a hardcore addict suffering from numerous addictions and likely homelessness. You may feel more comfortable putting Gomer at a 3 versus an 8. I get that. But the addictive issues remain, and I'm going to suggest they're driving the storyline of Gomer. I think it helps us to see all salvation by God as a miraculous intervention of addicts because all of us are addicts a little or a lot on that scale. So on her own, until Gomer accesses a power that's greater than the power of her addiction, she's never, she can never really respond to Hosea's love or... She can't love him back in return. So when God finds her and us, she's just not rationally considering all of her relational options. She's irrationally being led to one degree or another by her midbrain's reactionary behaviors. She's stumbling and flailing around to not get hurt again, trying desperately to cover the pain, the emptiness, the loneliness, the void, but in all the wrong places. Well, here's Dr. Kevin McCauley and his instructive video on addiction Pleasure Unwoven. There are two areas of the brain that are important to addiction. One is deep inside, the midbrain. The other is on the outer edge, called the frontal cortex. All conscious life, all our thinking, evaluating, feeling, and speaking, everything we sense occurs in the cortex. It's in the cortex where we evaluate the world, weigh options understand consequences. This is where choice is conceived. This is the part of the brain where we attach, where we give things moral and spiritual meaning. It's easy to see why it was once believed that the defect of addiction was here in the frontal cortex. This is the thinking, loving, moral, spiritual, and social choice part of the brain. And drugs must somehow break into the frontal cortex to create All that nasty behavior. It's a powerful idea that drugs work in the frontal cortex and that addiction is due to a moral failing, personality disorder, bad upbringing. There's only one problem with that idea. It's wrong. Addiction does not begin in the frontal cortex and drugs do not begin their work there. See what he's saying? Our tendency as we look at the tragic flailings of Gomer to escape the one love that can make her actually feel loved is to blame her for making bad choices. I mean, if only she were more reasonable. But the problem is not in her frontal cortex. It's not whether she is informed enough or reasonable enough. Her problem is in her midbrain. Quote, the midbrain does not think. It does not make choices or understand consequences. It handles the next 15 seconds in front of us. The midbrain tells us to eat. It tells us to defend ourselves, even kill. It fires our sex drive. These are all behaviors that are critical for survival, and to make sure we do these behaviors, the midbrain makes them pleasurable. And ordinarily, the frontal cortex keeps the midbrain in check, and it exerts top-down control over the unconscious survival impulses of the midbrain. But in addiction, this top-down control fails and the midbrain becomes more powerful at guiding behavior than the cortex. In other words, in addiction, something goes wrong at a level of brain processing long before morals or choices are used to modify behavior. Gomer is desperately, yet likely subconsciously, trying to escape internal pain, and so she's pursuing pleasure as she knows it. This is the picture of an addict. Matei emphasizes the former. Quote, far more than a quest for pleasure, chronic substance use is the addict's attempt to escape distress. From a medical point of view, addicts are self-medicating conditions like depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, or even attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD. Addictions always originate in pain. Whether felt openly or hidden in the unconscious, they are emotional anesthetics. Heroin and cocaine, both powerful physical painkillers, also ease psychological discomfort. The very same brain centers that interpret and feel physical pain also become activated during the experience of emotional rejection. On brain scans, they light up in response to social ostracism, just as they would when triggered by physically harmful stimuli. So when people speak of feeling hurt or of having emotional pain, They are not being abstract or poetic, but scientifically quite precise. The hard drug addict's life has been marked by a surfeit of pain. No wonder she desperately craves relief. In moments, I go from complete misery and vulnerability to total invulnerability, says Judy, a 36-year-old heroin and cocaine addict who is now trying to kick her two-decade habit. I have a lot of issues. A lot of reasons why I use is to get rid of those thoughts and emotions that cover them up. The question is never why the addiction, but why the pain? So the point, in and of itself, Gomer should, but will never return to Hosea or God's arms on her own. Gomer, when God finds her and begins to express his love for her, she can't really love back. She can't really be loved. Does that make sense? So this is where God's gospel starts for all gomers, including you and me. So Hosea, marry her, this hardened, emotionally fractured, wounded addict to give Israel a word picture of what the problem really is all about. She can run to the arms of her other lovers. She can go to their temples a thousand times and still no good. There's something messed up in her psyche, her brain. She can do religion all she wants, but she does not love me nor can she receive my love for her. She's broken inside. My love can and will change her, but Hosea, she will not love you either. Not yet. I'm not yet done with her. It's partly brain science. Am I over psychoanalyzing the whole story? I mean, it's probably not what you've heard in sermon series or Sunday school classes on Hosea. So how can empty, Love-starved addicts like Gomer be helped. Well, this is a good time, as any, to stop and get a word from our sponsors. We're going to be right back and hear that gospel for Gomers. So what does God's love for the unlovable addict Gomer look like? Well, I see in the text six intervention steps highlighted. God's strategy to pursue, to rescue, to love, to remove the shame of Gomer. Let me give you a warning. Only one of the six steps actually begins to accomplish the goal. I think that's the point. The rest are abysmal failures. Step number one, rebuke. Hosea 2, two, Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breast. Well, rebuke implies expressing a sharp disapproval, a criticism for someone because of their behavior. Uh, Look, gracious timeout for children, that could work, right? But rebuking addicts? Do you think that'll ever stop an addict from using? No, they they will likely turn it around and blame it on the person who's rebuking them. You know, I don't need to listen to this. I'm out of here. Addicts' inability to accept criticism ranks so high on the typical characteristics of alcoholics and addicts And often, you know, they're going to explode in anger and resentment at the slightest suggestion that they may be doing something wrong. And it's going to launch them back into their drug of choice to rid themselves of this new pain, this new shame. Uh, And again, how did it work for Gomer? No, (laughs) it didn't work very well because rebukes aren't going to work. It may change behavior for a moment, may scare him, but it has zero power to make Gomer feel loved, to love others, to be faithful, even with God doing the rebuking. Step number two, private exposure of ugliness and failure. Here's what the Bible says. I'm going to strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert Turn her into parched land and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I'm going to go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. It's Hosea 2, 3 to 5. So he's basically saying, look, Gomer, you can't keep this up. You're not getting any younger or prettier. In fact, your lifestyle's killing you. So I'm going to strip you of your makeup, clothes and leggings and hair weaves and jewelry, and you're going to stand in front of the mirror and just see what's gone down. Look at you. Nobody's going to want that. Not when they see all of the scars and all of the, all of the uglies, right? So what do you think? Is that going to work? No. It's an addictive habit, not logic. And maybe for a moment, maybe a day, maybe a week, Uh, she may feel ashamed, she may feel ugly and old, sad, depressed, despised, deprived, but in her brain, that's going to likely want her to soothe the pain and her habitual reactionary behavior is going to drive her back to the thing that she's run to 99 times out of 100. In Gomer's case, she's going to keep pursuing her lover, not pursue God. It's a shame-addictive cycle. It's brain science. So personal shaming, private shaming and exposure Won't change her in the long run. Gomer's still going to do what her brain believes will make her feel good. Step three, private deprivation. Chapter two, verse six. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first. For then I was better off than now. Well, this is the cold turkey approach. She's going to a 90-day treatment center. God's going to remove the availability of all the false loves. No more dope hits. Nothing will soothe her shame or or remorse or relational woundings, the pain of isolation. Nothing's going to distract her, and it's going to be hell for her. And don't imagine her saying, I'm going to go back to my husband resolution as real reformation. There's no sorrow there. There's no real repentance there. It's purely riddled with abject self-interest. It's an alcoholic's apology, right? We've all heard them. We've all said them. Step four, public deprivation and public shaming. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her nakedness. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all of her celebration, all of her appointed feast. chapter 2, verse 8 and following. So, so basically, I'm going to make it so that she's publicly miserable. It's like making the perpetrator wear a sign on the street corner or some, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm an adulterer or the old public stocks in the town square. It seems reasonable deprivation, public shaming should do it, but it's brain science. Neither has any real power to make Gomer begin to feel loved and lovable or remove the pain that initiated the addiction in the first place. Step five, public punishment. Well, this is God counting, you know. it's I mean it this time, one, two, 2.5, (laughs) 2.7, well, right? It's, all the grace is over it 's corporal punishment time. This is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. Listen, punishment doesn 't really motivate love either? If you punish a shame person you 're going to create more shame you 're going to create an angry shame person, a depressed shame person, an enraged shame person. And I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, says the Lord, Hosea 2:12 and 13. Look, God's goal for Gomer and for me is not that I would just stop misbehaving. His goal begins with healing that broken inner part of my identity and being. He desires that I could love him back as a whole and free person and I can feel loved by him. And these are largely the reasons that I make so many bad and destructive decisions in my life. as part of my inner addictive power. And until that's removed or healed, I'm going to keep on doing the same destructive insanity over and over and over and getting less and less satisfied. So if rebuke and private exposure of my ugliness, private deprivation, public shaming and punishment doesn't work and not change my addictive behavior and may even make it worse... God, what do you got? What can make Gomer and me and you truly feel lovable and loved and lovely? Yeah, here it is, step six, the unlikely romance. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. I will make the Valley of Acor, you know, muddy, gloomy, hopeless, despair, shame, I will make the valley of Acor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. Very intimate. And you will no longer call me my master. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness. And you will acknowledge the Lord. The idea is that it's an inner Uh, change. That's Hosea 2, 14 to 20. So unbelievably, God romantically woos this tragic, unloving and unlovable, addicted bride, takes her out into the desert, the place where there are no more lovers for her to be distracted by. It's just she and God, so much better than she would have ever dreamed of. She is with God, not just with God, but with the God who's crazy over her who obviously, even to her, romantically is pursuing her as she is. Not if she gets any better or prettier or younger or even more faithful. And you get why this is so hard for her brain to believe, right? In fact, I suspect a fear cycle gets triggered because it is too good to believe, right? She likely would have expected punishment, and matter of fact, she would punish herself. But instead of divorcing her, which... No court in the world would find him guilty for. God romances her as she is. He romantically pursues her as she is. Her lovers, when they see her uglies exposed, they vote with their feet and walk away. God sees her uglies exposed and also votes with his feet. He walks towards her, holds her in his arms, not as she should be, right, all repentant and changed and attractive, But as she is, the prostitute. Why? Because he loves her. No guilt trip, no shame, no probationary guidelines. It's crazy, wonderful, and unnerving at the same time. It's a head trip, this God's love for the unlovable. Why does he do it? Because that's how he feels towards her still. Not because he has to. He seems to really want to. It's his DNA, this is the simple, uncluttered gospel for all gomers, including we Jesus followers. This is the perfect love that casts out fears, 1 John four eighteen, and can begin to unwind the addiction's power in the midbrain. This love of God ignites brain chemicals like dopamine, depletes serotonin, ramps up the bonding chemical oxytocin so that even frightened, hardened prostitutes begin to feel adored at last. For a little while... She's going to need this wooing repeated over and over. But this is the path to a new source of highs that's being charted by the love of God. But as wonderful as those are, what the addict needs is the same thing that we all need. We, too, need this supernatural love of God embracing us, healing us, giving us a safe place, giving us an alternative for our addictions, uh, our midbrain's demands. So God gives her back her voice. Beautiful. Beautiful. The same voice that she used to sell herself and pursue other lovers, you know, giggled with that hair toss, the voice that she used to accuse her husband, complain, blame, uh, her purity, her glory, as if she had never been unfaithful. Now she can proclaim her love for God. Worship, prayer, I suspect it's going to take some time, and repeated kisses from God first. This is this good? Yeah. This is exactly what she subconsciously has been jonesing for for so long. Well, listen, I hope this series has been valuable to you. How amazing and frightening is this love of God? How troubling and wonderful. This is the love of God for the unlovable that is so desperately needed in our world today, in my life today. Let hurting, lonely, and anxious people know about it. Listen, if you've benefited from this podcast... Give us a comment wherever you listen to podcasts and officially follow the program. Thank you ahead of time. In the next show, we're going to take a look at another example of the love of God for somebody so unlovable. I, we've got to be able to get this right. God's love isn't safe. It's life-changing. It's troubling. And it's for even the most unlovable that you and I could ever imagine. We'll see you next time. Take heart, child of God.